Good morning. Our scripture reading today is from the Apostle Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 10, verses 1 through 13. You can find that on page 164 in the New Testament section of your Red Pew Bibles. Please join me in a prayer for illumination. Lord our God, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Give us grace to receive your truth in faith and love, that we may be obedient to your will and live always in your glory. Through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them, and they were struck down in the wilderness. Now these things occurred as examples for us, so that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not become idolaters as some of them did. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink, and then they rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did, were destroyed by serpents. And do not complain, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. These things happened to them to serve as an example, and they were written down to instruct us on whom the ends of the ages have come. So if you think you are standing, watch out that you do not fall. No testing has overtaken you that is not common to everyone. God is faithful. He will not let you be tested beyond your strength, but with the testing, he will also provide a way out so that you will be able to endure it. This is the word of the Lord. Well, to God be the glory this morning for his holy word. On this third Sunday of Lent, again, I want to thank you for being here with us today. And for those of you who are joining online, if this is one of the first Sundays you're back with us, the title that you see on the screen is an example of the focus that we've had over these last few Sundays of Lent. We have been talking about the call of God to walk in a particular path, walking the path, the choices, for every disciple of Christ. And that's sort of been our, our focus. And my dream during these 40 days of Lent and beyond is that the love of God will empower each and every one of us, the love of God. And I can't stress that enough, that the love of God will empower each and every one of us who calls First Pres their home to practice the way of Jesus seven days a week. That's what we're aiming for, and we're hoping that this season of Lent 
will spark that in all of us. And we're here as a church to help you do that. We're here as a church, and if you would go to our website, and if you aren't aware of the resources that we have, we would encourage you to go to our website, and you will find not only the scriptures that we're covering during Lent, but there's an opportunity to sign up for some wonderful Lenten devotionals that will help you in walking that path. And you say, well, why are we making such a big deal about this? It's because I believe that like a fish in water, like a fish in water that doesn't know that it's wet, we are often oblivious to the ways in which our culture influences us and shapes us and prompts us and beckons us in how we live. I believe we live in a world that is filled with many, many paths. And if you read the Gospels closely, you will find that Jesus was very clear about the path, about the way, about the broad way and about the narrow way. We live in a world that's filled with many paths, many choices, and sometimes we are so bewildered, we're not even sure which path do we go, which way do we go. And I think today's reading is one more example, and you'll find that all of the readings we will have th during Lent will tackle the complexity of what it means to live the way of Jesus in a culture that presents many, many pathways. So I have a question for you. If, if someone gave you a check for $518,628, what would you do with that kind of money? It's a lot of money. Some of you buy a new car, would you give to a charity? Would you help fund your retirement or pay college loans or in pay into the future of your kids' college tuition? How many of us, though, would take that kind of money and buy a football? Any hands would go up? Well, someone did just that last week. Someone took $518,628 and bought a football. And the football you're looking at was the, 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 the football that Tom Brady, who is the greatest football player ever in the American sport of football, Tom Brady was using that ball, and they were playing against the Los Angeles Rams, and he threw what many thought was his final touchdown. And the fellow who caught the touchdown threw the ball into the stands. And somebody took that ball and decided to, to auction it. And at that auction, somebody coughed up that much money to buy the football. Now, that happened last Saturday. Last Sunday morning, horror of horrors, Tom Brady goes on Twitter and announces that I'm no longer retired. I'm coming back. And the experts who know these things very well, they're telling us that right now that football is going to be worth a fraction of what the person paid for it. In fact, next season when Tom Brady throws another touchdown, that football will not be worth much. And I can just imagine the person, and you know, the, the article says they're anonymous, and I would want to be anonymous. <laughs> the person 
who made the purchase, I can just imagine the chest pains that they have endured. But it got me thinking, how many people today now, because of that experience, will slow down and think twice before investing money in sports memorabilia because of this anonymous person's blunder? How many of us would then use this person's example as what not to do? You see, I believe, and I I wouldn't have agreed with my parents years ago, but I agree with them now. We gain wisdom and life lessons in two principal ways. We gain wisdom and life lessons by reflecting and learning from our own mistakes and our own experiences, which for many of us, including myself, can be costly. And we can all look back on a time in our lives where we stepped into it, where we made a mess of things, where we were rash, impulsive, we we did the wrong thing, and we can't undo it. We just can't unring that bell anymore. But my goodness, what a life lesson that has been for us. And we learn that way. Now, some of us, like me, sometimes we don't learn anything from our mistakes and we go back and we keep knocking our head against the wall. But often, if we take the time, we can learn a lot from our own mistakes, but we can also learn from the mistakes and the blunders and the failures of others. And today's text has that tone. And I know, and I... I, One of the things I'm trying to do in this twilight of my years as a pastor is to understand the sea change that has happened in this country and around the world, that there was a time when we would read a passage like 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 13, and we as a community were much more biblically literate, and we would understand that that context that Paul is referring to, He was really looking back on a time in Israel's history, and you can read every one of those scenarios that he mentioned. You can find them in the book of Exodus and in Numbers and that that retelling of the story. But I now realize we live in a different time. We're not as biblically literate, but not only that, our sensitivities about what is right and wrong has drastically changed. And when you hear passages like these, some people say, there they go again. That's the reason why I don't want to have anything to do with these Christians, because even their their religious literature, it sounds so harsh. And I will agree. On the surface, what we just read, what you just read this morning, it sounds very harsh. And yet, this is exactly the reason why I, and let me speak for myself, this is exactly the reason why I find the scriptures to be very credible. Because the scriptures do not cover up the egregious acts of the people of God. Left to me, if I wanted to convince people that the Bible is credible, I would sort of pull a Jeffersonian type of thing with the Bible. And I would try to remove all of those areas where the Bible seems messy and embarrassing. And I would just kind of whitewash it so it reads in a more pristine way. But thankfully, I am not the author of the Bible. The Holy Spirit is, and the Holy Spirit didn't do that. But let me say this to you. If you're investigating Christianity, you're trying to, you're trying to grow in your faith, it's really important that... In order to do that, that you take very seriously how Scripture presents itself. 
It requires belief in Scripture, your faith. And I know that this is a huge stumbling block for many of us. But what I tell people all the time is that to stay away from Christianity, to use texts like these as one of the reasons why you find the Bible offensive is to also assume that if there is a God, this God simply wouldn't have the audacity to have views and opinions that we find upsetting and offensive. I tell people, listen, that doesn't make sense, does it? Only if your God can say things that outrage you, that make you struggle, that gives you pause, that leaves you questioning and wanting to know more, only then, and I hope you have friends like that, I hope you have people like that in your life who will say things to you that will, that will kind of get you angry or get you thinking or get you wondering that, who can show us the way. Only when you are willing to open your mind up to the possibility that there is a God like that who will speak to us of things that we will find disturbing, only then will you be able to hold on to a real God and not an American kind of God, not a Western kind of design for God. And so an authoritative Bible is not, is not the enemy of a relationship with Jesus. In fact, what I would challenge all of us to understand is that an authoritative scripture in many ways is the precondition to a vibrant relationship with God. And so, yes, Paul uses, Paul uses the messy experiences of believers in the past to counsel the first century Corinthian believers and to counsel 21st century believers like us. Because just like they and just like us, they or we presume ourselves to be okay, but often we lack the self-awareness about our true spiritual condition. And essentially, Paul is saying to them, you are in a perilous position, my brothers and sisters. If you allow yourselves the indulgence of thinking that you're okay, that sin doesn't matter, you are, you are in a dangerous situation. And these Christians back then, they thought that the combination of their adherence to the sacraments and their spiritual experiences, and the First Corinthian church was an amazing church, the spiritual gifts that they demonstrated to each other, that they would actually think that that is sufficient to protect us from losing our way. And what Paul seems to be saying to them is, you're relying on yourselves, guys. You're not relying on Christ. In other words, they were, they were overly confident in themselves. When we are overly confident, what we're doing is, it's like we're leaning over our skis. We become careless. We make huge mistakes. We overestimate our abilities and we underestimate what God can do. And in my reading this past week, I meditated on this text from Proverbs. And I want you to just take a quick look at this passage from Proverbs. It's a very short verse, but it's, it's pithy and it's full of wisdom. By insolence, the heedless make strife. Think about that. But wisdom is with those 
who take advice. Wisdom is with those who listen, who reflect, who take advice. And this is what Paul does. He provides them solid counsel for how to avoid being overly confident. And you'll notice in the text, as you heard it read three different times, he says it in, in, in various ways. He says, look, I don't want you to be unaware without knowing, my brothers and sisters. And then later on he says, now these things occurred as examples, as types for us, so that we might not desire evil as they did. And then the third time he says later on in the reading that these things happened to them to serve as an example. And they were written down to instruct us. And that word instruct is a wonderful word. It is from which we get the word counseling. Counseling. They were written down to counsel us on whom the ends of the ages have come. So Paul counsels them by going back into the past, looking at the lives of those who have come before them. And Paul is essentially saying, let's try to learn something from these folks. Now, I was thinking about all that's going on in Ukraine, and I've just been thinking to myself just how, how lacking in perspective this Russian leader is that we fought a, a global World War I, World War II, we've had Korean Wars, we've had the Vietnam War, we've had, we've had so many wars going on, not just in the Ukraine, but right now going on in many places around the world and in Africa. And you would think just by having a little bit of a perspective and looking back on the examples of those who have waged war, that it never really comes out good. That sometimes that in itself, looking back on those markers, would be enough to caution how we blindly run into, into warfare, but, but apparently not. And somebody said that when we can't learn from our, our mistakes and our past, we're doomed to repeat them. I'm not sure who said that, but, but that seems to be in my memory. And that's what Paul is doing. But it's, notice, it's interesting how Paul then begins to counsel them. He doesn't start with the negative. He starts with the positive. He starts by identifying the grace of God and the goodness of God. And he says, first of all, don't you remember how, you, how these folks experienced what he calls, what I call divine direction? He says, our ancestors were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And again, if you're familiar with that story of how God led the children of Israel all the way from Egypt into the promised land, they were, they were directed by, by day with a, with a pillar of cloud, and at night they had a pillar of fire, and they all passed through the sea. God was their captain. God was the one who was directing them. And then there was divine deliverance, and all were baptized into Moses. Moses was their leader. They were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and maybe that's sort of an echo to God delivering the children of Israel when Pharaoh's army came against them, but God also provided for them divine provision, and notice that they all ate the same spiritual food. They all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the rock, and they followed that rock, and that rock was Jesus Christ. God provided for them in the wilderness, and they were truly blessed. They had divine covering. They had divine favor. They had God's power with them. They had God's blessing with them. God directed them, and yet we read these very sad, sad words. Nevertheless, nevertheless, God 
was not pleased with most of them, and they were struck down in the wilderness. Now, God sounds schizophrenic, doesn't it? I mean, one minute God is blessing them, and the next minute God is striking them. How is that possible? Here's my answer. I think what happened, and it happens to all of us, we love the gifts, and we forget to love and thank the giver. And despite God's hand, despite God's favor, despite God's blessing, despite the display of God's power over their lives, they still wanted something different. They wanted something. They were essentially saying that, God, we, you're good, but you're not good enough. And how do we know that? Well, look at the four egregious errors, sins, mistakes that they committed during their wilderness wanderings. Every act of rebellion brought pain into their lives. And so Paul says, first of all, do not become idolaters. And essentially, Paul was just kind of summing up the Decalogue, summing up the book of Deuteronomy. Don't become idolaters as some of them did, as, as it is written. And you can read about that in, in, in uh, Exodus 32. The people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. They worshiped that golden calf, and then they, they indulge in every kind of orgy and improper behavior. Don't, don't become idolaters. And then he, he has another negative in verse 8. He said, do not indulge in sexual immorality. And it could be hearkening back to what happened in Exodus 32, but it could also be a reference that as the people traveled, they started to engage with the women and the people of the other lands, and they committed every kind of sexual immoral act, as some of them did, and we read that 23,000 of them fell in a single day. And there's one more negative. He said, we must not, we, we, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did. You'll remember several times they would often say, we had it better when we were back in Egypt. You, you, you brought us into this wilderness to kill us, to kill our children, to kill our women. We really don't believe that God has the power to take us through. Let's go back. Let's go back. Yes, it was slavery, but it's better than being in the wilderness. They put God to the test. And then he says to them in verse 10, do not complain as some of them did and were destroyed. Let me just pause a little bit on this word complain. The last couple of weeks I've been reading about the science of emotional contagion. And I see some of you are wearing your masks and that's awesome. I'm, I'm, I'm getting to think I should start put my, putting my mask back on because the, the, the threat of the COVID-19 contagion is still with us, but there is something that is called emotional contagion. And do you know that emotions can spread like the flu, just like other virus, viruses? And the way it happens is it happens when people around you exhibit a certain kind of emotion, and invariably the people who are in the orbit of that emotion begin to pick it up. For example, where I'm from in Jamaica, we typically, no matter where we go, we walk into a room. You don't walk into a room without smiling and saying good morning. And when I first came to America, I just thought nobody likes me because I say good morning. Nothing. 
And then I found out eventually that it's cultural. It's, it's really not people in America don't like me. It's just, it's cultural. You, people just in America don't just, aren't necessarily very friendly. But generally, you walk into a room and you say, good morning, maybe one person will say, hey, good morning. Or you walk into a room and you smile. Somebody makes eye contact with you and you smile at them. Often the person is going to smile back at you. What's happening there? You are emitting an emotion that sparks something within that person. And I want you to try it sometimes. So people, people are so angry these days. I want you to walk in and start just saying thank you everywhere you go and ask people how their day is going and, and, and just, just, just spread that emotion of joy. But it can also be negative. And this is what was happening. Paul says, don't, don't complain. And there are people today who walk around and the sky is always falling. They complain about everything. They're negative. They're thankless. They, they live in a perpetual pity party. And invariably, you spend time around those people and they will infect you with that negativity, that cynicism, that anger, that bitterness, that joylessness. And these folks... Paul says, don't be like them. They complained about everything. It was too hot. They were hungry. We're going to die. Moses is a bad leader. Let's get rid of him. Let's stone him. This man of stuff, we're over that. Give us some meat. And after a while, it started with a few, and the whole community got infected with complaining. What's the lesson? What's the lesson here? I think that's what Paul is saying to the church. We should not use our privilege as a basis for carelessness. And I'm stealing that quote from Douglas Mangum's book, his commentary on 1 Corinthians. Don't use your privilege as a basis for carelessness. You know, freedom is a wonderful thing, but if you, if you don't handle it correctly, it can morph into a kind of a demonic behavior. Don't use your privilege as a basis for carelessness, but rather we should beware that we don't, that we don't end up falling like the Israelites did. And so Paul ends always, at least in this series, you'll hear many of the readings ending with a call to action. A call to action. And what's that call? Well, first of all, it's a call to humility. And you'll see that in the reading. Essentially, Paul says to them, if you think you're standing, God help us, right? If you think you're standing, watch out. Watch out that you don't fall. It's good to be confident, but don't be overly confident. It's good to feel good about yourself, but don't, 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 Turn it into a mirror, mirror on the wall. Don't overestimate your strength. Don't think that, well, that happens to them because they're dumb. That could never happen to me. Don't, don't think you're above the failures of others. And I'm telling you, we're living in a time right now where every day I, I open up my, my, my news feed and it's about another pastor, another pastor, another pastor, another priest falling, falling falling. When I read these words, it, it, it shakes me to the core. If you think you're standing, watch out. And that's one of the 
benefits of learning from the mistakes of others is realizing that we have the capacity to do the same thing. And if we're wise, if we're wise, and I think that's what Paul is saying to the church at Corinth, we will take preventative steps to avoid a repeat of those failures. Somebody once said that an ounce of prevention is worth what? A pound of cure. That's what Paul is saying. If you think you're standing firm, be careful. Humble yourself. That's what Jesus did. That's the way of Jesus. Walk in humility before God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and before one another. And each day you wake up, you say, God, I thank you for this day. I humble myself before you, and I pray that you will take your strength from my weakness so that I can endure the tests that are before me, and I will not lose my way. Start your day that way. I think the second thing Paul is saying to us is that we need to lean on the Lord. Lean on the Lord. And that beautiful passage, no testing has overtaken you that is not common to human experience, but God is faithful. God will not let you be tested beyond your strength. But with the testing, God will provide the way out so you may be able to endure it. We're going to be tested. Jesus was tested, as we read earlier on that first Sunday of Lent. Jesus was tested in the wilderness, and he leaned on the Word of God. He leaned on the power of the Holy Spirit, and he trusted the Lord as he was being tested, and we must do the same. And then last of all, and we didn't read this past this verse, but it's the very end of 1 Corinthians 10, where Paul says, as you face each day trying to avoid being overly confident, seek the glory of God in all things. Think about that. Paul says it a different way. In Philippians, in Ephesians rather, he says, find out what pleases the Lord and then do it. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, God help us as a church to remember that. Whatever we do, we do everything for the glory of God and for the glory of God alone. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and God's people say, Amen.